0: If you aspire to attract highly affluent interior design clients, you may be surprised to learn that your interior design skills are not the most important factor. Trust, confidentiality and professionalism trump raw skill and differentiate you from your competitors. Take it from Pamela Harvey, today's guest, who is the principal owner of Pamela Harvey Interiors, as well as one of Pearl Collective's business coaches. Pamela has had a lot of success working with affluent clients, In this episode, you'll learn how she did it, as well as plenty of other business lessons you won't want to ignore.
1: Pamela, it's great to have you with us today. I'm excited to talk to you about your journey as an interior designer, and I'd love for you to just start there. Tell us how you got into interior design.
2: Thank you, Gail. I got into interior design 23 years ago easy for me to remember since I started in year 2000 Um, I had been a corporate executive for Liz Claiborne for a number of years and my third baby was two years, just about two years old and I basically had the entire east coast so I was traveling pretty much every week and I thought you know I need to find something else to to do that is not so hectic and and spend more time at, at home with my family so I um, I had met a couple of interior designers and I was really fascinated by what they did. And I had hired one to help me uh, previously in my house in Alexandria. And so I looked into going back to school. Well, I quit my job at Liz Clayborne first. It was the first thing I did. And because I had no time to do anything extra with that. So I had quit my job and I enrolled in Classes at at Marymount, and I don't know. I guess it took me about two years to get a degree in interior design, and I was probably in my mid to later thirties at the time. So it was a little daunting going back to school, but I have to say, I really, I really enjoyed it. And I think twenty three years later, or so I still have a lot of friends from from uh, college that I went back to school with, which is great, and. As I was in school, I had redone my own kitchen, and every time I had some kind of event at my house or party, people would ask me if I could, you know, do their kitchen, and so I kind of started out doing a lot of kitchens and bathrooms, and it was really just from having people over. I wasn't even really ready to work yet. I think I was just finishing up the last of my classes, and before I knew it, I had a pretty large group of clients. And then I was like, you know, I need to get serious about this and started my own firm working out of my house, like a lot of us do in the beginning and kind of just kind of grew my business from there. And I think when I got to a point, you know, somewhere down the road where I started doing a lot of different things, I did a lot of commercial work. I think I've done everything um, over my 23 years. I used to do I went from doing kitchens and baths to doing uh, dental offices, orthodontist offices, and doctor's offices, which was really great because that's what I was doing in 07, 08, and 09 when the economy went south. And for doctors and dentists, you know, their business stays pretty consistent. And so I think that really kind of tied me over during that time. And then my residential work really didn't heat up until now I would say maybe 12 years ago and a lot of my commercial clients were by residential clients and pretty much now I do almost a hundred percent residential. Yeah. And there was some point in there, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Well, I've been following Gail forever. Um, And I think I first started seeing you speak uh, somewhere at High Point, Mm.
3: probably
2: 10 or 12 years ago. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Ancient history. (laughs) We started working together some different different levels, maybe six or seven years ago mm-hmm. uh, with different coaching and VIP. And you know, I think my business now is certainly much stronger and better run than it ever has been before. And I, you know, I have to say it's just been a constant learning experience. Mm-hmm. Every-
1: well, we don't go to school to get a degree in, in business necessarily. I did, but that was well before I ever started my design degree. So, you know, when you go to design school, they don't teach you that.
2: No, they don't. They, they we had one adjunct professor that came in and um, I think she taught us. I don't remember really. It wasn't material and sources. I forget the class. And and it may have Know, she taught us how to do binders actually for projects and she didn't really teach us so much how to price out a job but she did teach us how to put a project together um like real projects together and that was that was probably pretty helpful but the rest of them you know there was no talk of you know what should you charge or what should you mark that pro- product for and you know how to, how to read a profit and loss statement. There was really none of that. I think we took math, when we take math for the liberal arts.
1: <laughs> right, so it doesn't exactly teach you how to do all those things that you talked about. And it's so important
2: to know that. Yeah, I think hiring a good CPA at some point too is, mm-hmm. was, was really helpful. So going back
1: a little bit further, did anybody in your family have the design gene before you?
2: No, I don't think so. No.
1: No.
3: Isn't that
2: interesting? My mom liked to decorate, I have to Mm -hmm. say. Um, I don't know. I would say she either liked to decorate or she liked to buy things. (laughs) She (laughs) She would go to the big furniture store and usually work with someone there. And I know she would. She used to redecorate the living room, or so I think, every every five years, completely. So, and I don't know if she just got bored and liked to buy new things. Um, she doesn't anymore. Um, she's eighty one, so that stopped. But I think that maybe started my love of it. But I always loved art, in and early on, that was always my favorite class, and I used to paint. I think my mom still has a lot of things that I used to paint when I was probably
1: an early teen. So you had that natural tendency toward creativity anyway. So it sounds like a, it really is a great blend. And I'm so fascinated so with how many people have an interest in fashion. And you ended up working for a fashion company for a number of years. So how do you think that prepared you for being an entrepreneur or at least the interior designer?
2: Working in working in fashion was really a great experience, and it was tough back then. It was a tough industry to work in, which I think did probably the best job in preparing me to work in interior design because it's a tough field to work in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got to have fairly thick skin some days, and it is hard work. And I think the the, the fashion part was really great, and I was allowed to. Pretty much do whatever I wanted in my stores, and I think that um, one of the things I was really good at when I worked for Liz was handpicking what product should go to what stores. And they didn't do a lot of that before. It was sort of like, oh, if you're at a level, you're going to get this. If you're a B level, you're going to get that. And you know, we had stores in downtown DC, and they would send like tennis square to, and we'd be like, you know, no one's buying that here, especially back then. People dressed in, in suits and or were very professional. So I think that talking to your customers, learning them, and kind of tweaking my store's inventory made me really successful for a while with, with, with working in fashion. And you know, even a lot of times doing, doing the windows. We used to have windows back then.
1: Gosh, that's such a big job. And, and it is a, a decorating job too. So having the eye for that and the ability to discern what is going to sell is also a great skill that you have as a result of having worked in fashion.
2: Yeah, it really is. And, you know, you teach your your employees. I I was a a VP with them and I had, I don't know, 400, 500 employees that worked under me. So you do a lot of training and a lot of it is training people how to wardrobe. And, you know, how to put that, you know, even, they call it a capsule wardrobe today, but, you know, we used to teach a lot of professional women, you know, buy these nine or 12 pieces, and this can be your work wardrobe.
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, now you've got the home wardrobe that you're working on. (laughs) So over the years of working um, with designers, we've had a lot of people who have come to us and said they wanted to start in a different location. And I know you have a, sp- a place in Virginia and one in Florida. So was this something that you planned to do? How did that happen?
2: No, I didn't. I didn't plan it, Plan it. I guess. Um, my, my ex-husband did a lot of work in Tampa because he was in defense contracting and it was kind of a natural from D.C. to Tampa mm. um, because there's a lot of government and defense contractors that work in both. And we were spending a lot of time down in, in Tampa and I really started. I loved, you know, and I loved it immediately and I would go with him And, you know, before I knew it, it was like, you know, let's buy a house down here. And we bought a house down here and I wanted to spend more time here, but I loved working And I didn't want to stop working, and I didn't want to just give it up. So I opened an office in 2016. It was originally in Tampa, and then we moved to St. Pete, and I labeled it as St. Pete. And St. Pete was a little sleepier back then than it is now. So most of my work originally was in Tampa, but a lot of it now is, is in St. Pete. and I have an office in St. Pete, and I had to work a little bit more with marketing myself here uh, to get some of my first clients, but I, actually, my first clients in Tampa found me on Instagram.
1: Mm. What is the benefit been of having the two locations?
2: I think from me, the benefit is probably um, that I like living in both places. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can choose where you want to be when you, when you want to be there.
2: Yeah, that I think is really the the biggest part of it, and. I have Reinhardt's disease, so I have very poor blood circulation, and that was why I liked being in the warmer climate in the winter, because I get so oddly cold in um, usually December, January, February, and it gave me that ability to to be in a warmer climate, which is so much more enjoyable, and I feel like just personally I'm happier with the sunshine and the warmer climate. And I do like, you know, I love going, I love having the beach and the water around me. I do think it makes you a little happier. I've thought about it, as you know, um, of giving one of them up and kind of settling down in one or the other. And I don't think I'm ready. I don't think I'm ready to do that yet.
1: Well, you don't need to. So what are some of the challenges of having the two locations?
2: I think financially, you you have to make enough money to run two offices and have you know at least one other person other than you um, on staff because when you're not there, somebody needs to be there um, to be able to go to clients' houses or something you know comes up or take deliveries and you know all that stuff. So I think you have to do enough business in both locations, or at least one to offset the financial aspect of it. I think that part is a little bit difficult. And then I think sometimes it's difficult because you don't always, you're not always able to set your own schedule. Um, if something comes up, we have a couple of big renovation projects right now in Virginia. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we need, you know, we need Pamela here. And it's not as easy today to hop on the plane as it, as it has been. hmm now I think in one of the other things that I thought about when in moving is I need to leave, live within a half an hour at least of a major airport. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good logistical
1: plan. Well, in terms of this, if somebody's considering doing a second location, and like I said, so many people have talked to me about that over the years. What are some of the other things you would tell them to consider besides being thirty minutes
2: away from the airport? That definitely comes in hand. I think to do more of a business plan and really weigh out the expenses and why you. You know, number one, why do you why do you want to be there? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a personal reason um, that you want to be there, and it's not necessarily a professional reason. And then I think make sure you know what that business plan looks like to get another office, to get a staff, a person on staff, and you know the insurance in the other state what the state's requirements Florida's Florida's very particular mm-hmm. um, with pretty much everything what all their licensing and, and all of that and you know taxes they are very they're much different than uh Virginia is so i think knowing all of that before you kind of just jump in and do it makes a big makes a big difference i don't think i used to think it mattered how many interior designers there were in the area, but I I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think if you've got a good look and people find you, they'll still continue to find you in other locations. And I think now, I think what COVID changed the way we do business so much that, you know, we don't have to meet in person with our clients as much as we used to. So that's made it a lot easier. And I think that we all kind of move around a little bit more. So I think that makes it more appealing
1: Well, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently in
2: your business? You've had
1: 23 years, so you've had a lot of time to try a lot of different things.
2: That is true. Um, What would I do differently? That's a good question, Dale. Um, I, I don't know what I would do differently, actually. I might have hired more staff earlier on and maybe flew a little bigger earlier on. Than um, than I did. I think I was a little bit hesitant to hire and grow for a portion of the time that I've been in business, and I think that probably held me back a little bit. Um, and I think if I wanted to make more money, I definitely would probably say that would that would have been the, the biggest the biggest thing. Um, I don't, you know, I think I might have. Come up with a more of a signature look earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, I felt like when I was early out of design school, I kind of had to be able to do everything and every look. And I spent a lot of time doing a lot of different things, which I love. But, you know, I don't know that working and designing dental offices and doctor's offices matters anymore today. I, you know, I learned a whole lot about it, but I also realized that that wasn't what I wanted to continue to do. So I probably would have picked a, a more streamlined path mm-hmm. and a better focus overall and really thought about, you know, where do I want to be in five years or 10 years and how do I get there and what does that look like? Where mm-hmm. I don't think I did that planning before. I think it just sort of, you know, it's kind of that saying where who's running, you know, are you running the business or is the business running you? I think I went through a lot of years where the business ran me. hmm
1: Well, I noticed, though, over the years that we worked together that you were just very methodical about making the changes necessary to streamline and do the things you needed to do. So ultimately, you did get there and you did make all the right decisions. And sometimes I think you have to try things for a while and find out what doesn't work so that you know what that comparison is so you can contrast it with whatever (laughs) that experience is. So what do you think you've mastered in the business of design and how has that helped you through the ups and downs for the last several
2: years? I think what I've mastered in, the la- in, the, in my tenure of being an interior designer is knowing what projects to take most of the time, still not perfect at it, knowing which ones to walk away from,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and learning to say no. I think I've gotten very very good at that finally. It took me a while to get there. And I think I've mastered in a lot of ways hiring the right staff and knowing what I want those people to do and being really upfront and honest when I hire them as to what, you know, what's what we're going to do. It's not, you know, it's not going to be uh, pretty every day, and some days we're going to roll up our sleeves and we really have to work. So I think that I've done a good. I think I've done a good job of, of mastering the expectations of hiring people, what people expect when we hire them. Most of my employees have been with me um, I don't know, five to fifteen, sixteen years now, which is kind of nice. Some of them have, come, have left and come back, um, which has actually worked out pretty well. And I think I've I've mastered all the first um, pellet probably much more the procedures. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that you know you and I have worked on is you know having set your goals and monitor what you're making, charging for your time accurately. And I know that's you know that's something you say all the time, and 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 you need to because that is one of the areas I even by myself to this day. You know, having to go back and say, "Did we build this project right?"
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, did we? What have we missed? And and keeping regular um, track of it, and you know, all the different. Plus, learning, I think, all the tools that are available to us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's a an ongoing process and is changing quickly too. So there's a lot to learn even today that we didn't know yesterday for sure. Yeah one of the areas that I think you've done a great job of in particular is working with this affluent client and the people that you've worked with, I know that they've changed quite a bit in what their expectations are, but I think also um, they also have expectations that maybe a lot of people that haven't broken into that yet have And what would you tell people that are listening to this that want to work with that more affluent client? What do they need to know about the affluent today so that they can get into that higher level?
2: I think trust is sometimes a huge issue with with breaking into a more affluent client level. And I think they, in some ways, or maybe a lot of ways, need to almost feel like they know you personally personally. And I think what helped me is I, I've done I've sat on a couple of boards that are uh, for charity organizations. I've worked with a couple of charities, and that certainly gave me um, a way in. Um, I used to get a lot of clients from the country club, and I, you know, I used to play golf fairly regularly. I still do, but not very regularly. And I think once they feel you sort of fit in a little bit. Not necessarily that you might be their equal or anything, but I think you need to be able to understand their lifestyle. And I think that that's probably one of the bigger issues. There was a client that hired me a couple of years ago in St. Petersburg that moved here from Portland, Oregon. They interviewed three designers and he hired me. And I, you know, one day we ended up being at the same, uh, I don't know, yacht party. And, you know, he had a few drinks and he told me why he hired me over somebody else. And he said, you were the smartest. And he said, you knew all the right answers to everything I asked you about. And a lot of those really were about, you know, is the house going to be secure or how are you going to handle this? And how are you going to, a lot of them was how I would handle things was what they were interested in because he told me who else he interviewed, not three of us aesthetically probably look somewhat similar and we're all pretty good. So I think they, I think that whole comfort factor needs to come in and that trust needs to come in. Most of them like the fact that you have employees and procedures because I've had a couple other affluent clients tell me that they worked with the, this designer and it was just her. And then when they had a big project, they felt that this one person would not be able to handle what they needed that person to do. So mm-hmm. they felt more comfortable hiring somebody that had a team and there was some backup.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I think you need to be able to talk to them, too, about other things, travel, uh, personal life, be able to talk to them about their travel. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me a, a long time ago that, you know, your best interview with people that feel they're important is to let them do the majority of the talking. Mm-hmm. I think they have a really great meeting and I often write that on the top of my paper before I go on an interview with them. I write, you know, sometimes I'll just write, you know. Shut up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you obviously have a lot of repeat clients too and there is very clearly a reason that they keep coming back. First of all, you're doing a great job for them. But it sounds as if you have all of the expectations um, that you discuss up front. And then it also sounds as if, uh, again, you build that trust factor. And all, all of those things are exceedingly important in order to get somebody to make the choice. And once they've made it once, it's way easier to get them to come back, don't you think? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, it's easier for all of us because mm-hmm. we already know so much about that client.
3: Mm-hmm. and they have
2: a lot of So the expectations are a lot easier to meet when it's a
1: client. Well, excellent. Well, let's wind up with just a last question with three parts to it. And I would like for you to help our listeners with some pieces of advice. And the first one is what advice would you give to single moms?
2: Um, I was a single mom for a good portion of my career,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: having three daughters. And I think that is probably where it's even more important to take the right clients on. Mm -hmm. uh, Because you can't take the clients that are so needy and you're going to make so little money out of because your time is, is so important. To you when you're a single mom and you're juggling a a lot of balls. And when I was a single mom, I used to get up at 6 a.m. And I would get kids out to school. And then I would work until 3 o'clock when they came home. And then I would, you know, put them to bed and go back to work quite often at night. And that worked for me for, you know, for many, many years. And it allowed me to get a lot of things done. Um, I didn't. I typically don't talk about my personal life to my clients a whole lot unless I really know them really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might know everything about their personal life, but I don't give away a lot of mine. Um, but then when I was a single mom, there were some clients that you, I got to know and they were kind of used to me bringing one of my kids along. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I think some of them really liked it. Um I used to have a dog that traveled with me all the time. And I had a lot of clients that, you know, were like, oh, I hope when you come today, you have the dog. Um, And my youngest daughter, Stephanie, used to go to clients' homes with me. So I think sometimes when you have that comfort factor, some of the clients like that more personability part of it because Mm -hmm. it's not something I typically do, Um, especially coming out of D.C. where, you know, the, the status quo is pretty professional overall. Um, I think manager time really important is probably the biggest thing and take the right clients and don't try to please everybody. And we have a saying in my office, I like to put it on a plaque. So I have to remind myself and my team often is that we don't do charity work for wealthy people here. And I
1: agree. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. So the second piece of advice I'd like you to give is to new entrepreneurs that are getting into the industry.
2: As I said earlier, I think to make a plan. Um, I didn't really have a business plan when I started out. I think, as I said earlier, I just kind of let the business carry me. And I think to sit down and make a, a five-year to a 10-year plan, a little bit of a forecast and what you really want. And... That plan could encompass a lot of things. I think it's sort of, um, it's been a while since I did one of your VIP days, but I think that is one thing that you teach us in a VIP day is to make a plan. So I would say that if you're new, even though you're not doing a lot of business, you know, out of the gate is to set up some systems and have a business plan going forward so that you can achieve the goals you want to achieve
1: hmm. Absolutely. And then the p- final piece of advice for today is to the designers who are currently in business who are feeling the impact of the economy. You've been through the 2008 period. I remember that well. <laughs> and what would you say to those people to
2: deal with the uncertainty that's going on right now? I think uh, we've talked about it a little bit and there's been a couple little changes that I've had to make in my contract recently that I think clients have done that I hadn't experienced before. That's sort of a, an, another topic. But I think, one, I follow up m- much more consistently now with every lead. Um, I think doing some of those things to put your name back out there, you know, send something, you know, send a Holiday post out to all of your clients and keep your, you know. I think the hardest thing for all of us in probably a lot of professions is is keeping ourselves relevant, and I think finding something new to talk about and something you know to keep that fresh, and it might just be good. every time I do a big blog post and I send it out to my entire mailing list, I always give it least ten former clients or. Mm-hmm. Or sign up on my mailing list, contact me that week. And I feel like when my business does get a little rough, I'll start to look for that a little bit more and remind, me, you know, find a nice way to remind my clients that, you know, we love referrals and, you know, we love to, um, you, know, get you to introduce us to some of your friends or whatever. And don't turn down the invitations to, you know, any holiday parties or events, you know, show up and, you know, get out there and network and talk to people.
1: Great advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You've shared some great words of wisdom and some golden nuggets I think a lot of people will benefit from. So thank you for your time today. Yes.
2: Thank you, Gail.
0: Thanks so much to Pamela for joining Gail on this episode of the podcast. If you listened to the whole thing, hopefully you took away some insights about attracting affluent clients, and if your firm is even set up for work with this unique customer base. Join us next week for another educational episode of the Creative Genius Podcast from Pearl Collective.